Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Welcome, friends and lovers of the law. Welcome to the podcast, See You in Court. I'm Robin Fraser-Clark, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Lester Tate. Good morning, good morning, Lester. How are you, Robin? I'm fine. How are you? Doing good. This is our third taping of a podcast in uh, 48 hours. So I know. We're I not, know. We're, 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 we're uh, doing uh, pretty well. <laughs> I, I, I hope for our listeners we're showing improvement as we go along, too, you know, so. <laughs> we, we are. Today, we're, we're uh, very happy to have a journalist with us, Josh Sharp from the ABC, and I'm going to turn it over to Lester to introduce Josh to our listeners. Well, we are, uh, I'm telling you, we're very fortunate today, and we have our first guest that's a non-lawyer, I think, uh, since we started the podcast, and uh, uh, Josh is uh, a reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, he uh, is a native of Waycross, Georgia. We were talking about that just a little bit earlier. Um, Josh has uh, has written for the paper, uh, has covered for the paper a story that uh, is going on down in South Georgia now in Camden County. And uh, Josh, I want to say about your story, uh, I read last night what I think is the perfect synopsis of your story. Um, and uh, it, it, it said, bursting with all the courthouse scheming, small town intrigue, and stunning plot twists that have become the hallmarks of the master of the legal thriller. Uh, that was not written about your piece. It was written mm-hmm. about John Grisham's upcoming book that comes out in October. <laughs> but I thought it fit what you've done uh, uh, down in Camden County and the reporting you've done down there. Uh, <laughs> even better than it that it fit anything that that John Grisham uh, that John Grisham has written before. Uh, how long have you been with the AJC, Josh? I've been with AJC four years this month, actually. And and, and where were you? Where months. were you before that? Before that, I was at the Gornet Daily Post uh, over in Lawrenceville. Before that, I was at the Cherokee Tribune uh, in Canton and. Before that, I was uh, doing freelance work for the Florida Times Union covering Southeast Georgia. Well, I know that uh, among the other stories that you've covered are are executions, the resurgence of methamphetamine, the failure of authorities to protect children uh, who were found, two children who were found buried in their backyard, uh, and the ravages of Hurricane Michael. Uh, Among your recognition is you received the 2018 Award for Excellence from the Atlanta Press Club. So that is uh, uh, certainly a very, uh, very impressive uh, uh, resume. And I understand from, because you and I follow each other on Twitter, and uh, I understand that you also play the steel guitar. Is that right? Those things have gotten busier. Well, let's, 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 let's try to set up for our listeners just a little bit about the, uh, the story that uh, you've written about down in, uh, down in Camden County, because a lot of times now, and particularly with the work that the Innocence Project does, and the Innocence Project 
uh, lawyers uh, and lawyers from King and Spalding are involved in this case. But you, you frequently have stories about where folks uh, uh, come to the conclusion that they've got the wrong person in jail. Uh, your story and some of the evidence there would tend to indicate uh, that maybe uh, we now know uh, who might be the right person and, and they're running free while uh, uh, Mr. Perry is still sitting in, still sitting in the penitentiary. And so if you could kind of just set up with a little synopsis about uh, uh, what this story, uh, what it is in a nutshell and how you got involved in it, I think that would be great. Sure. Uh, so it's easiest to start from the beginning. Um, on March 11, 1985, there was a Bible study going on at Rising Daughter Baptist Church in a tiny community called Spring Bluff in northern Camden County. Uh, this is a historically black church, um, and that that will, the reason why that's relevant will will, will come up in a bit. Um, but anyway, there was a Bible study going on, and a unknown white man uh, showed up in the vestibule of the church and asked to speak with uh, a man named De a man named Harold Swain, who was a deacon there. He also happened to be the only man there. There were um, there were about a dozen people there. Everyone else there was was female. And it's not clear if, if he uh, if he wanted if he knew Harold Swain or if he just wanted to speak with him because he was the only man or, or you know what it was. But nevertheless, uh, he asked to speak with uh, Harold Swain, and uh, Harold Swain went to the vestibule to meet him. The the women in the church didn't really pay much attention because people were kind of always stopping by asking for money or food or something. Uh, but anyway, then they heard uh, a struggle, and then they heard four gunshots, and uh, Harold Swain's wife, Thelma Swain, ran to the vestibule to try to help him, and uh, she was shot along with him, and both of them fell dead there in the vestibule. Now, for many, many years, this was a cold case because the the, the local authorities just could not figure out who who would have done it, and they had some theories, but they never could get enough evidence to bring to bring charges. But uh, in, in the year 2000, a man named Dennis Perry was arrested for the crime based largely on the testimony of his ex-girlfriend's mother, who said that, she, that he told her he was going to kill Harold Swain. Uh, Dennis Perry ends up getting convicted, and he, he's been in prison for, uh, he's been behind bars for the last 20 years. But I got into uh, interested in the case, um, I guess it was coming up on a year ago now, uh, just because I'd heard that it was something that the Georgia Innocence Project was involved in. And I heard that there had been a podcast and there, um, a podcast called Undisclosed, which some of your uh, listeners are probably familiar with. I understand it's very popular with uh, folks in the legal profession. This Undisclosed podcast uh, did a very thorough, very, very good investigation of the case, basically reinvestigated from the beginning. <clears throat> and I heard that. And there was, anytime I'm thinking about covering a case, especially one that has already been covered by someone else, I'd like to see if there's anything that, that, that hasn't been done that maybe I can do. And, you know, any, any road less traveled that maybe I could, could take a walk down and see if I find anything. And they, the podcast focused largely on a former drug trafficker who had been a suspect years ago in the case. Uh, but it sort of mentioned a couple of times this man named Eric Spar, uh, who was a an alleged 
racist or white supremacist who had lived in the area of the church and had allegedly suggested to both his first and second wife that he was the one who killed the couple. Um, and so that, so they had not really gone too far down that road. And I was really interested to see if, if I could find anything. So that's what, it, so I started looking into this man, uh, Eric Spar. So uh, and, if, um, go, I, 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 I was just going to say, I, I, Go, go ahead. I, all, all I was going to all I was going to say was that because uh, Rob Robin has some questions for you. I wanted just to kind of tell our listeners that uh, not only is this a well investigated case, it's really well written, Josh. And uh, I, I wanted to read just a, a few lines from your piece because I've, I've touted it as being Grisham-esque, and I think the setting <laughs> is very important. But in the second paragraph, he writes, if you leave the coast and drive west, passing fancy Bluff Creek and the fast food chains clustered around the I-95, you might notice the smell of salt falling from the air, the land growing drier and harder. After 14 miles, you arrive in Spring Bluff, an area of mobile homes, aging ranch styles, and piney woods. Spring Bluff is one of those places that used to be. There used to be a place called Reed's Store where people bought cigarettes and Cokes. There used to be a place called the Choo Choo Barbecue. Everybody used to know everybody. And so that's the, the kind of setting that this took place in. And I think you capture that so well for those of us who've sort of lived in small towns. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, very nice. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your investigative journalism into this case involving this suspect Eric Spar. Tell our listeners how you tracked down what had been done before by the, the district attorney's investigators and kind of blew that wide open, the, showing that it wasn't he, he, uh, he allegedly had an alibi for work and you blew it wide open, showing he really had no alibi. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So there was sort of <clears throat> uh, the, the evidence about this guy, about Eric Spar, did not really. Um, it didn't all jive together. You know, there were, you know, he had allegedly said that he did it, but then he had this alibi and the alibi was the reason why the original investigators had not, <clears throat> had not put more scrutiny on him. The alibi said that he was working at Winn-Dixie in Brunswick at the time that the murders happened. So thus could not have been, uh, 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 could not have been there to do it. And you know, I was looking at this document that detailed that alibi, and there was part of it that stood out to me. First of all, this alibi was given over the phone, not in person, uh, and it was attributed to to Eric Spar's supervisor or manager at the Winn Dixie, and that person told an investigator that he had spoken with other employees who recalled that night and recalled Eric Spar being at work when the murders happened. Now that doesn't seem all that strange until you find out that this conversation with the supposed manager was taking place a full year after the murders happened. And obviously it's, you know, it's very hard to remember what you did last week, uh, let alone what your coworkers did last week, let alone a whole year ago. So that seemed really strange to me. And also one thing I've learned as, as a reporter and, and and just as a person is that people tend to tell the truth 
you know, people tend to say things that have, you know, when, when you know, every, everybody isn't a liar. Most people aren't. Most people, at least there's some sort of grounding in reality in what they say. Even when they're saying something crazy like, I'm the one who killed those people. So when I heard that this guy kept saying that, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I should, maybe I should not discount what he's saying. Maybe I should see if there's any way to, to prove him correct. Because um, as I say, I've been shocked so many times by people who I thought were lying and they ended up being telling, they ended up being telling the truth. Uh, so the obvious thing that I needed to do was um, see what I could find out about this alibi. I needed to talk to the manager who had, who had spoken with the investigator and the the document said that that person's name was Donald A. Mobley. And for Mr. Mobley, there was a social security number, there was a birthday, there was an address, there was a home phone number and a work phone number. And I set about trying to find this person and I couldn't find where there had been any person by the name of Donald A. Mobley who lived in the Brunswick area at any time, let alone back then. So that was weird. So I had to, so then I had to find people who worked at the Winn-Dixie, um, which was a very, uh, very boring process. But I'll just tell you, it, in, it involves reading a lot of old Winn-Dixie ads and newspaper stories that happened to mention Winn-Dixie and like finding a name here and there and then, you know, going through obituaries and calling people and weirding them out, asking them if they worked at Winn-Dixie 35 years ago. <laughs> but eventually I found someone who worked, a husband and wife who worked at that same Winn-Dixie at the same time that the murders happened. And they told me they did not know of a Donald A. Mobley. They never had one at the store. Turns out the man, the man who managed the store was named David Mobley. So I called him and he said, I never spoke with the police about this. I don't know what you're talking about. And all of the personal details listed for, uh, for the manager were wrong. They were all, I mean, the, the best way to say it is they were fabricated. Social security number belonged to a, to a woman who had died years before the murders. The work phone number, which ought to have been Winn-Dixie, I learned from uh, looking at an old uh, crisscross phone directory at the Historical Society, the work phone number was not even a business, let alone the Winn-Dixie. It, um, it was a home phone that belonged to a widow there in Brunswick. Uh, so, you know, this, this alibi just fell apart um, upon, honestly, not a whole lot of scrutiny. Um, yeah, so that, that sort of busted things, busted things open and uh, started in process the process that's going on now where um, Dennis Perry may soon leave prison and Eric Spar may be in some legal trouble. So go ahead. One more question about that, Josh. Did you find out that when they investigated back in 95, uh, um, the investigator, his name was Dale Bundy that they had hired to investigate. Did you find out that Mr. Bundy, Bundy had not, had talked to the wrong guy, basically, thinking he had the manager, and or had he even done that? So it was. So Dale Bundy was a different investigator. The the investigator who spoke with the manager was um, GBI agent Joe Gregory, um, and he spoke with him on the phone. And you know, you know, in hindsight, he feels you know he doesn't he's not thrilled that that's the choice he made. But you know, I'll say that they did have a 
ton of suspects. Um, so they had a lot of work to do. So I imagine that's probably part of the decision. But you know, I've, I you know I told Joe Gregory what I found, and I also told Joe Gregory that I had heard that Eric Spar used to have a habit of pretending to be other people on the phone. And when I told the GBI agent that, he he told me that he was very very concerned that he might have been tricked and the person on the phone was not. Uh, was not a Winn-Dixie employee at all. So one one of the people that uh, in in the last alibi, which is uh, uh, was published in the Atlanta Journal Constitution uh, a few weeks ago, I think still available online. Uh, and and it, it's by subscription. You need to subscribe to the AJC as well. Newspapers are struggling now to provide folks with the great journalism like you're hearing about here today. Uh, but one of the people who's a sort of major character in this, and when I read it, uh, is, is Butch Kennedy, who was the original sheriff's detective that investigated this. And, uh, you know, I could, I could almost see this like a, a character in a movie, Woody Harrelson playing him or something like that, because uh, it, it seems that he started investigating this. Uh, then uh, when, uh, Mr. Perry was charged. It was after he had left the investigation, required, retired from the sheriff's office. He testified, I think, uh, 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 largely in favor of the defense at Mr. Perry's trial and sort of always felt like they had the wrong guy. Uh, yeah. is, is that accurate? And, and, and what's he like? What can you tell us about, uh, yeah. about him? So Butch Kennedy is sort of like this uh, born policeman. Uh, he grew up in the Telfair County Jail. Um, his father was the chief sheriff's deputy there, and part of that job was you had to live in a suite under the jail. <laughs> um, so, so he grew up. His first memories are uh, you know talking to prisoners, <laughs> and you know you know watching his dad work. So he this was always what he was going to do. And and you know fast forward years later, he's the chief sheriff's deputy in Camden County when this homicide happened. And that means that he's going to be their their guy on this. He's going to be the lead investigator. And, you know, when I think about who Butch Kennedy is, I, th I think that he is just, he's just so passionate about, um, about doing what he is personally supposed to do. And his job was to find uh, justice for the victims, in this case, and the community. And he just cared so much. The, the, the thing that, you know, I've talked, you know, obviously like y'all, I've talked to so many investigators through the years. And he's the one who I've spoken with who I felt that he, he cared. He cared about this case more than I've heard of any investigator caring about any other case. He was so invested in it. It was the most important, uh, most important job he ever had in his whole life. And, he feels a tremendous, tremendous amount of regret for having failed um, because he did not solve it. Um, he ended up, you know, leaving the sheriff's office in 1992. And at that point, the case was still cold. And that was something that has always haunted him. And, you know, when Dennis Perry was arrested, he was initially happy because he thought, OK, somebody's done it. Somebody's figured it out. But then his former partner in the case, GBI agent Joe Gregory, calls him and says, Butch, we investigated Dennis Perry. Back in 1988, and he remembers, oh, my God, that's the guy. We did investigate that guy, and they found out back in 1988 that Dennis Perry 
was at work in, uh, in, um, in the Atlanta area when this happened. And from Atlanta to get to, to Camden County to the church would have been, you know, a long time. And he would not have had time to get there is what they learned back then. So now Butch Kennedy is just horrified to, to hear that they've charged this guy who he knows from his own investigation could not have been at the scene of the crime. And he testified for the state at the trial, um, but he testified, but that's because they're the ones who called him. You know, I feel sure if the defense had called him, he would have testified for them too. And he believed back then, just as he believes today, that Dennis Perry is innocent. And, you know, to, to, to Butch Kenny's credit, he has, you know, since, since Dennis Perry was arrested, he has done everything he can to, to, to you know, help right what he sees as this tremendous wrong that not only is is a man who he believes is innocent in prison but where's the guy who actually did it you know um so he he is you know given affidavits you know about what he remembers and what he did in the case and um you know he helped me tremendously with with my story and he uh was was gracious enough to to let me put him in the story and tell his 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 own personal experience um and now you know you know he told me so many times that he hoped to live to see the end of this case to see it resolved and damn if it doesn't look like it's about to happen um it it, it could happen any day now that, that this wraps up so Josh, when you discovered the information about this other person, Eric Spar, who who may have been the, the actual killer, uh, blew blew his alibi wide open. What did you do next? You go to the Innocence Project lawyers and say, "Look at this. This might help." Or what what happened next? Well, um, yeah, I, I talked to the Innocence Project about it to sort of, you know. For various reasons, but but the, the the result of that conversation, I also told, you know, Butch Kennedy about it, and I would have uh, liked to have told the DA's office about it if they would have talked to me, but they wouldn't. Um, but anyway, I told the Innocence Project about it, and they decided, well, this is something we ought to look into, and they, and they had, you know, they had, um, they were aware of who Eric Spar was, you know, um, so they decided to to do a DNA test on him um, and compare that to the only DNA evidence in the case, which was from a, a couple of hairs that were found in a hinge of a pair of glasses that were located inches from the bodies when investigators arrived. These glasses, the two initial investigators always thought those glasses had to have belonged to the killer because, well, first of all, they were Caucasian hairs. Everyone in the church, as I've said, was, was African-American and they had, you know, nobody could explain where those glasses came from, so, the, so they figured the killer must have dropped them. But at Dennis Perry's trial, those glasses were sort of explained away, you know, Dennis Perry's DNA didn't match those hairs. None of the other suspects who they tested matched the hair. So the state, you know, essentially argued that they're probably irrelevant, you know, who knows where they came from. But obviously, uh, Dennis Perry's attorneys have, have always questioned that narrative. So they, they decided to do a DNA test. They, they went and spoke with Eric Spar's mother, who agreed to give them a couple of hairs. And they, uh, they tested that, and the test came back showing that someone from Eric Spar's maternal line 
was was the owner of those hairs, and that was you know cannot explain how how shocking that was you know after it had been at that point thirty five years since the homicides happened, and nobody had ever matched those hairs, and then just and then all of a sudden, bam, this guy matches. Uh, it was a really earth shattering moment. I want to ask you a little bit, and uh, in, in the spirit of full disclosure, too, I, I uh, talked with you some and gave you some sort of legal opinions uh, as you're writing this. I was not involved uh, in the case, was just sort mm-hmm. of, a, uh, I guess, an outside uh, expert, uh, if right. you will. But uh, the, the, the feeling I got in talking to you and in reading The Last Alibi is that the, the DA's office uh, as well as Dale Bundy, who was the new investigator that came in, the one that actually made the case against Dennis Perry, who's been in prison for 20 years. Uh, as, uh, as you and the Innocence Project lawyers sort of uh, were closing in on the truth uh, about this, it seems like they got uh, more reluctant to talk about it, more reluctant to, to, to disclose or to, to make anything available uh, uh, about their case. And so my question is, is, is that true? And, and, and also, could you talk a little bit in the end about some of the things that, the, that, that have happened recently in the last couple of weeks and sort of the, uh, Mr. Johnston, who's the, the, uh, was the prosecutor and who is, is still the chief assistant DA, uh, down in that circuit and, uh, what, what his attitude has been towards this, uh, really startling new uh, evidence that that you helped uncover. Yeah. So first, before I forget, it's the imperfect alibi. Imperfect alibi. Yeah. I said the last alibi. I'm it's sorry. Fine. I, 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 it's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, either one, that would have been a pretty good title too. <laughs> um, so did Dale Bundy and John Johnson become more hesitant to talk as I found more information? Um, I would say it would hard to, it, w- it would be hard to become more hesitant. Um, <laughs> they were always <laughs> hesitant. Um, you know, they did not want to talk about it. Uh, it is something that, um, I gathered as, as anyone probably could had been a sore subject for both of them because they had been criticized about the case for, uh, I mean, hell since the very beginning of, of when they charged Dennis Perry or even before they charged Dennis there they were criticized about it so they didn't want to talk about it um and yeah as time has gone on i've only uh recently been able to talk to john b johnson who is the as you say the chief assistant da down there um but i should probably say what's recently happened in the case is so after uh, i published my story the the gbi reopened the investigation into the the swain's murders um, which is, as, as y'all know, is, is extremely rare. I don't even know of another instance where they've opened a 35 year old, uh, homicide case, but, uh, they, they reopened the case and, uh, Dennis Perry's attorneys filed an, an extraordinary motion for new trial based on the DNA evidence and the fact of the apparent fact that Eric Spar had a fabricated alibi as well as some procedural issues. Uh, there was a couple of, um, situations where John B. Johnson was accused of not turning over information to the defense. Um, 
so since that has happened and more evidence has come out uh, related to Eric's bar, um, John B. Johnson has sort of dug in um, and, you know, continued to defend his conviction, the, the conviction of Dennis Perry. Uh, there was a hearing last week about, about the motion for new trial. And John Johnson argued during that hearing that Dennis Perry isn't entitled to file any kind of motion or any kind of relief for himself because he waived his rights to appeal. And it's true that Dennis Perry waived his rights to appeal immediately after the jury convicted him. John B. Johnson walked up to Dennis Perry's attorneys and said, if you will waive your right to appeal, we will forget about the death penalty. They had been seeking the death penalty. And Dennis Perry, you know, facing, uh, facing death, decided to try to live and uh, waived his appeal rights. Um, and it ended up that the, that, uh, the judge down there in the hearing did not, uh, was not swayed by this argument from John B. Johnson. He said, as a matter of fact, the, the record shows that Dennis Perry waived his rights to appeal. This isn't an appeal. This is a motion for new trial. But even if the judge said, even if Dennis Perry had waived every right he had, it would be a miscarriage of justice to not listen to this evidence. Um, so, so yeah, that's where we are now. And there's a hearing tomorrow morning at 9:30 uh, for for Dennis Perry uh, to see if he if if the judge will grant him bond to be released while the the reinvestigation is going on with the GBI. Um, and you know, as you as you mentioned, uh, John Johnson. I, I I finally spoke to John Johnson for the first time last week, or the first time you know actually interviewing him last week. And he, uh, you know, he 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 stood by this argument. He said, you know, we do care about about this new evidence, and that's why I'm happy that the GBI is investigating. But Dennis Perry doesn't have any rights. You know, he threw them away. He threw away his appeal rights. Uh, and I told John Johnson that I'd spoken to a lot of experts, uh, including you, Lester, uh, and I could not find a single person, I still have not found a single person, who does not work for the Brunswick DA's office who thought that John Johnson was doing the right thing in fighting Dennis Perry's motion for new trial. Couldn't find a single person. Um, I would love it if they would contact me. But, I, you know, I told John Johnson that, and... He essentially said he didn't care what anybody thought. And, and those, by the way, as I recall, uh, you know, I, I do uh, criminal defense work. I've never been a prosecutor. Uh, you talk to you talk to people who had been prosecutors. You talk to people of all different uh, mm -hmm. political stripes and of different places uh, throughout the state uh, in and sort of building that that consensus of opinion, too. Right. Yeah. These aren't just, you know, uh, bleeding heart liberals, you know, people on both sides, people. Um, uh, uh, yeah, across the spectrum, uh, and nobody agreed. And to be clear, the judge uh, granted the motion, for, motion for new trial, right? Yeah. So he's he's now got a new trial, uh, possibly, but mm. possibly. I guess we're waiting to hear if he's going to get bond or if the DA decides not to retry Mr. Right. Yeah. So what we're, what we're doing now is waiting to see, 
what the DA's office uh, is going to do, but the DA's office has said what they do will be dependent on what the GBI finds. So we're waiting to see what the GBI finds and if they decide um, to tell the DA that they found the, 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 that their investigation shows that Dennis Perry didn't do it or that their investigation shows someone else did it, you know. Um, so, but yes, it says now Dennis Perry's conviction has been overturned and it goes back to the pretrial posture, which is he's just charged in the case. So he's seeking bond and we'll find out about that tomorrow, hopefully. Um, and then he just waits to see, uh, to see what, what happens. And yes, it is, he's granted a new trial. Everyone I've spoken to thinks that a new trial is pretty unlikely in this case. Certainly when you have, uh, certainly when you have DNA evidence pointing to another person uh, it would, it, you know, everything I've heard it, it would be a pretty tough trial. So, uh, I, I was going to talk to you about the original trial mm -hmm. uh, a little bit and, yeah. uh, and, and some of the observations that I had, uh, about that and see if they, those were accurate. A, a lot of people that are in the penitentiary now wrongfully convicted, uh, you, you frequently hear, and there's substantial evidence that they really didn't get a very good defense. But it sounded like there was a there was a, a good amount of evidence that his defense lawyer did a pretty good job uh, with this case when it was originally tried, but that the jury just sort of went the other way uh, on the case. Is that is that an accurate observation? Well, I um, you know as you say, I'm your first non-lawyer guest, so I so my knowledge of of whether it was a good job or not. Uh, is, is not as good as y'all y'all would be able to to say, but they certainly did a lot. You know, the defense invested, you know, very uh, very strenuously investigated the case and investigated another suspect, this man named Donnie Barrington, who had been a drug trafficker and who had um, who had been a suspect in the initial investigation. Essentially, their argument at trial was that uh, Donnie Barrington is your guy, not Dennis Perry. And they, um, you know, they clearly put a lot of time and money into it. Uh, and then the, then the jury, you know, went the other way. And, you know, I've talked to people who were there at the trial and, you know, people who weren't involved in the case, you know, didn't, didn't really have a dog in the fight. And they told me that, that, that everyone, or that most people were pretty surprised when the jury returned the guilty verdict. Um, and, you know, Dennis Perry's attorneys were, were surprised when the, when the jury in, entered the guilty verdict. And that, that is, um, you know, part of why they, they told him that it might be a good idea to take the deal because the, to take the deal to waive his appeals, because if he didn't, they might send him to death. So the, the, the other thing on that is that this was actually a cold case when Dennis Perry was tried. It was, you know, we think of it as being a cold case now. The murders occurred in 1985, but it, it, it was pretty, pretty damn cold at the time that, uh, that, that Dennis was, uh, was indicted. And my understanding is that uh, there's a ton of sort of missing evidence uh, that, uh, that would have been in the, in the, the, uh, sheriff's department's file or an investigative file. Uh, and also, uh, they had a star witness for the prosecution that was, uh, paid and that, that, that wasn't disclosed. So can you, can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, 
Yes, there. You know, it's it, it's 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 impossible to say how much evidence exactly is missing and how many records exactly are missing. But suffice to say, a whole lot is is expected uh, to to be missing. There's no physical evidence left in the case at the time of the trial, um, 15 years ago or 17 years ago. There was there was almost no physical evidence left. All these records are gone. The records from uh, the two initial investigators' investigation into Dennis Perry, those are almost all gone. There's only a few pieces of paper that mention Dennis Perry's name from that original investigation, but based on the way these investigators um, tended to document things, uh, it, it, it is logical to assume that there's a lot missing from, from their files. And both of them as it turns out, left left um, left their 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 positions with their respective agencies suddenly. Uh, uh, Butch Kennedy was uh, was relieved of his duties by the sheriff uh, in 1992, and you know he left, and the files were at the sheriff's office when he left. He said, uh, Joe Gregory in 1998 thereabout uh, was in a catastrophic car wreck. Um, and broke his, uh, I think, broke his neck and back. Um, so when he, and he had to retire because of that. And all of the records were at the GBI when he left. And then, you know, fast forward to the trial in 2003, and both Butch Kennedy and Joe Gregory are surprised, you know, where did all the records go? Um, they, they, they don't know. And no one has ever uh, been able to to account for those records. I know that the Undisclosed podcast spent a lot of time looking for them. I spent time looking for them. I, I know Dennis Perry's attorneys have spent time looking for them, but they seem to be nowhere to be found. Uh, and yes, the, the the case against Dennis Perry was very much um, based on the testimony of a woman named Jane Beaver, who was his Dennis Perry's ex girlfriend's mother. And Jane Beaver said that Dennis Perry had told her that he was going to go kill Harold Swain because Harold Swain had laughed in Dennis's face when Dennis asked to borrow money. Um, now, what the defense did not know, the jury did not know, was that Jane Beaver would make $12,000 uh, for her testimony. That was not disclosed to, to, to anyone. Um, and... Uh, However, we know from from records in in the in the DA's office case file that Jane Beaver was interested in the in the reward money, which that's where that twelve thousand dollars came twelve thousand dollars came from. The reward money. She showed interest in that. I believe it was a day after Dennis was arrested. She called to ask about the reward money, and then uh, fast forward to after the trial, she ends up being paid that reward money. I think it was a few weeks after the trial. Uh, and that was not disclosed, and no one had, no one knew that until two years ago. Uh, so all these years went by, and what I've been told is that the, the sheriff's office denied for for all that time that that Jane Beaver was paid the money. But during the production of the undisclosed podcast, one of the hosts uncovered a document, a bank record that showed that Jane Beaver was paid the $12,000. So 
So only two years ago did that come out. And that has been part, obviously, that has been part of Dennis Perry's attempts to to overturn his conviction. I don't know if uh, if the Mr. Perry's attorneys argued this, but uh, at the at the hearing for the motion, the extraordinary motion for a new trial. But it seems to me that if uh, when they were talking about the the DA was saying he's waived his right to to bring any appeals. Seems to me if you don't know that a the main witness got paid twelve thousand dollars for a testimony, I wouldn't call that a knowing waiver. But uh, I mean, you know I don't. I don't know if they got got right into that, but certainly they argued that Dennis Perry did not get a fair trial and his rights were violated by not knowing that this woman was getting paid twelve thousand um, dollars. You know, and and I say again, it, the state never told that she got that twelve thousand dollars. Someone else figured that out, uh, and the state has subsequently admitted. John B. Johnson, you know, acknowledged to me that Jane Beaver did get the money. Um, but yes, you know, they said, they say that, you know, Dennis Perry was in the dark because, because he, you know, he had no idea that this woman had, uh, had this incentive to testify. Um, and also the, the defense, uh, the defense did know that this woman, Jane Beaver was, was known even to her friends as someone who did not have a firm grasp of reality. She had been through a lot of trauma in her life. Um, uh, but the defense sought to uh, to use that in the trial, but they ended up um, losing a request to get her her mental health records. So they ended up not bringing that up at the trial. So what the jury saw was a woman who, on who while she was testifying, appeared to be authoritative, appeared to be, you know, saying something that she truly believed. And from the verdict, it appears that they believed her. So what's the what's the you, you've spent a lot of time uh, down there uh, uh, over the years and 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 Camden County and you, again I, I read part of the description earlier but it's a it's an extremely rural uh, county uh, uh, down in southeast Georgia uh, I, I my high school football coach came from down there and I remember uh, him talking about you know driving kids you know forty miles home from football practice at night because it's just sort of a rural, you know, small, you know, area. Yeah. And, and uh, so what's the, what's the sense that you get in the community down there uh, of how just the, the general population uh, feels about this and has that changed over time? I do think it's changed over time. Um, people uh, certainly, Many people who I talked to believed have always believed that Dennis Perry was guilty. Um, you know, because the jury found him guilty, and because you know the the police and the DA's office said he was guilty. Um, but as this new information has come out, and as the years have rocked on, and more questions have have come up about the way Dennis Perry's case was handled. Um, People, people's beliefs have started to change, and um, and you know, you know, some people who I've talked to, you know, have been really outraged. Not only that that Dennis Perry's trial went the way it did, or Dennis, the case against Dennis Perry went the way it did, but that there's this other person who was allowed to to just um, go about his life for all these years, 
um, as if as if nothing ever happened. And you know, yeah, people are people are people are certainly upset about that. I think there's some people still do have questions about Dennis Perry. You know, part of the part of the evidence against Dennis Perry was statements that he allegedly made during an interrogation in which, uh, according to the report, he allegedly said that, um, you know, things like, you know, maybe the gun went off by accident. You know, the, the, the investigators asked him, you know, do you think the gun went off by accident? And he said, maybe, yes. And, you know, do, if you could undo this, would you? And he said, yes. And, you know, uh, all these things essentially Dennis Perry's attorneys have argued that this was an attempted forced confession, uh, which ultimately stopped when Dennis Perry said, y'all are putting words in my mouth uh, and stopped the interview. And only at that point did an investigator start to try to record. Before that, that he had, they had not recorded anything. And even the investigators who were in that room do not agree about what Dennis Perry said. It, it reminded me, it reminded me, I tried a murder case years ago where uh, sort of like uh, uh, Mr. Perry, they, they took my client into an interrogation room at a police station and uh, they've got video and recording device. And they, the only record of what my client said was, uh, was uh, what the police had written down afterwards. And, and on cross-examination, I said, you had that recorder there. Don't you think, uh, don't you think you should have recorded it? And the, the police officer in that case looked at me and said, yeah, I think that would have been a pretty good idea. I don't know why I didn't do it, uh, which yeah. I thought was a moment of candor. But but all of that confession in Dennis Perry's case, if I understand correctly, is uh, is is really hearsay. Uh, you know, it's not hearsay because it's an exception to the hearsay rule if somebody confesses or makes a, a statement against interest, but it's what somebody else says he, he said, not a recording, not a video, uh, not a written statement that's signed or anything like that. Right. Right. Uh, and, and another th thing that happened at the trial was Dale Bundy, this sheriff's office investigator testified on the stand. He said, Dennis Perry told us that he was at the scene when the murders happened. And that's not in the report of what was said during that interview. And there were three other investigators who were in that room during that interview. And they were asked about this on the stand and none of them remembered Dennis Perry saying that. But Dale Bundy got to say that on the stand. And then John B. Johnson talked about it during his, his closing argument. He said, Dennis Perry said he was there. Dennis Perry said he was there. Um, because he could say that because Dennis, because Dale Bundy had said it under oath. Didn't matter that the other, that 75% of the people who were in that room had no recollection of it. Uh, it was in evidence and he got to stay up. Um, yeah. That, that so, by the way, is one of the reasons that uh, criminal defense lawyers say don't talk to the police until you get a lawyer, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not, you know, cause the public frequently says, well, why wouldn't I, I don't have anything to hide. Why would I not talk to the police? But uh, but you don't know what the police are going to write down about what it was you did or didn't say uh, later on. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, that um, those that interview has followed uh, Dennis for all these years. And some people, because of what Dale Bundy said that Dennis said, still wonder, well, why? Why did Dennis say that? Well, Dennis, you know. Dennis's attorney's position has always been he didn't say that, you know, but people, you know, people in the community pick up, pick up bits and pieces, you know, 
uh, and you know don't spend as much time with with the case as as people who are paid to do that. Uh, so that has influenced uh, some of the public opinion. But but nowadays, you know, people are people are definitely starting to reconsider their their notions about this case. I was talking about the public opinion about this case down in Camden County. One thing that strikes me is that they um, district attorney prosecuted an innocent person. Innocent person's been in prison for 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. He's got a new trial now. There's another suspect who who knows if that person will ever be tried. Um, and so we're left to me with a, a lack of justice for the the swings, because you said they were beloved in the community. I think everybody said that, that they were well thought of, um, and yet their killer may never um, be held accountable for it. Is that some sentiment that you've, you've seen down there? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, like you all, have, have, have looked into many, many murder cases and uh, I've, I've researched many, many murder victims. But these two are among probably the most beloved that I've ever seen. I mean, just everyone loved these people. Um, they were, you know, pillars of the community, as they say. And, you know, people were certainly upset that, that their deaths went uh, unsolved for you know, the 15 years that they did before Perry was was arrested. And then, you know, they had the satisfaction, you know, the ones who thought that Perry was guilty, and I should say there's always been uh, people, even even a few people in the Swain's family who never believed that, that Perry did this. Um, but nowadays, um, the, the community uh, could end up being left with this terrible conclusion that not only was was did the crime go unsolved for a long time but then perhaps when it was solved it was inaccurately solved and the man who went to prison was innocent and that, and that you know would seem to the people i've talked to that seems to sort of compound the pain of this whole investigation uh because you know not only did we lose these two people but in the process of investigating the case, a man who may be innocent spent 20 years in prison, uh, you know, during, you know, because of these, these homicides. And, you know, that's not, that's not what the Swains would have wanted. You know, that's not what anybody wanted. Um, so it's just a terrible situation. And, you know, I'm, and everyone is certainly hoping that the GBI, um, can get to the bottom of, of what the hell happened and and maybe bring some justice to the case. But, you know, as, as you all, as I'm sure you all could imagine, it's everything I've been told uh, from my reporting shows that, that, that this would be a tough case, um, you know, to try the Eric Spar case because you'd have to tell the jury, hey, we, uh, we sent another guy to prison, but, Turns out he was innocent, but trust us this time. You know that that might be uh, that might be pretty difficult. Um, there's a, there's a, reasonable doubt. 
there's a great line in the and Scott Rose book, Presumed Innocent, uh, that that says every prosecutor knows as a practical matter it is it is a virtual impossibility uh, to try a second person for murder after one person mm-hmm. has been acquitted, and and that is without the lapse of time, uh, you, you know, and and all the other factors that sort of uh, sort of uh, kick in here. Uh, tell us just a little bit about you know it seems that Dennis Perry from what from what I read uh, has exuded uh, a, a lot of hope and a lot of optimism that mm-hmm. many many people would not have been able to sustain uh, even going so far as to uh, uh, marry uh, get married while he was in while he was in prison um, and so have you had an opportunity to actually talk with him about the case or is you're dealing with him been via correspondence or by telephone or, or uh, can you tell us something about that yeah uh, so the, uh, the Department of Corrections declined um, my request to to interview Dennis in person uh, as well as on the phone so uh, I ended up having to just exchange letters with him. So I've only spoken to him through through correspondence. Um, I've certainly heard a ton about him from 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 the other people I've spoken with, including his wife. Um, and yeah, he's someone who's just had this sort of almost superhuman optimism about him. Uh, that, you know, he's always you know, just just have so much hope that one day this is going to be set right, that, you know, he, he prays about it constantly. Uh, one thing he said uh, said to his wife was, I'm going to pray my way out of here. Um, and now he has more hope than he than he has uh, in, in a really long time. Uh, once he found out that the DNA had matched Eric Sparr, he said that he felt like a free man already. He just had to wait on everybody else to do the right thing with that information. And yeah, that's, that's still where he is now, right now. Um, it, it's really unfortunate that, that everything happening with his case is happening during the COVID-19 outbreak because he hasn't been able to see his wife in months because the prisons have stopped uh, visitation. Uh, due to to the coronavirus, and he he hasn't even been able to talk on the phone to her as much as he would like, um, just because of the lockdowns and everything going on at the prison. Um, but still, he, he's managed to stay hopeful, and you know certainly is is optimistic that he can come home tomorrow, which is just amazing to say. After 20 years, uh, he might walk, he might go home tomorrow. So I, I, I want to ask you a question about you. Mm. If, if, if tomorrow the DA's office uh, announces that, that uh, 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 he's going to get a bond or that they've dropped the charges, I think it's highly likely that he gets a bond. Uh, don't, don't, don't see much way uh, that, that he wouldn't get a bond uh, right now. But the prospect is that within the next few days that a man that's been in prison for 20 years is going to, uh, walk free, uh, and it's going to be in large measure to things that you, you've done. Uh, all that time spent looking at reverse uh, phone books to try to track down Donald Mobley, who who turned out to be David Mobley, who turned out to be not the guy that the police talked to. How does it feel to have had 
such an important role in turning this case around uh, uh, as a journalist and to and to seeing this happen based on the fruit it's, it's the fruits of your labors oh that's a that's a loaded question for me right now um you know for for obviously it's the ultimate thing that a journalist that, that a journalist could do is 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 help a person who who is in dire need and help you know help advance the cause of justice potentially um so i'm grateful um, uh, you know if if that happens if 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 um you know if the case ends up you know getting in a posture that that most people can agree is the right one i would feel i would feel great about that at the same time i have to say that it took dozens of people for this case to be where it is right now had it not been for the dozens of people who had investigated this case before me I would have had to run down all the leads they ran down and we would not be talking right now. There's no chance that we would be talking because I would have spent my time. Uh, I would, I would still be neck deep in, <laughs> in, in records and, and trying to find people to interview. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I think it's great. I think um, that it feels it feels rewarding to me to um, to be having an impact on a case um, that so many people are telling me is the correct impact to have. Um, but at the same time, I I have to to give credit to all of the other people because when by the time I came into the case, it had been investigated by so many people over thirty five years. Uh, I came in as like, is there anything I could look at? Is there anything nobody else has looked at? And damn, if the, the one thing that I could look at wasn't the thing that busted it wide open, you know, I mean, I have no illusions. I got lucky as hell. Um, so. Well, yeah, you know, uh, everybody else's efforts don't really count unless you get the ball into the end zone, and and you seem to me to be the one that that, that got it over the got it over the line down there. I, I don't know if Robin may have some other questions about the case, but uh, she's she always gets the last question, and it's a doozy. I think I've warned you about it ahead of time. Mm. But uh, Robin, what have you got for us? One thing I, to Josh's last point about however many other people investigated this, I do know, and I don't know where I saw it, may have been the extraordinary motion for a new trial, but the pro bono counsel working with Georgia Innocence Project, King and Spalding, Philip Holliday, and others, I saw where lawyers and paralegals of King and Spalding had uh, donated, because they did it all pro bono, over 3,000 hours of time into this case, which is, you know, massive, a massive amount of time and um, money had they been paid. So um, shout out to them and shout out to the George Innocence Project for their work. Um, Josh, I watched a little short documentary on this called The Imperfect Alibi. Neat idea to put that together with the work you've done on the case. I really enjoyed that, um, and I found it on, I think it was YouTube. Um, tell us a little bit about that project and why y'all decided to do that. Well, um, gosh, why did we decide to do that? I'm, I'm sure the reason that we decided to do that was uh, 
that Ryan Horn, uh, our video, one of our videographers, when I told him when he heard about the case, got really excited and, you know, wanted to be involved. And he's, you know, he's brilliant. It really knows what he's doing. Uh, so it seemed like a, a good way to communicate our findings and the story to people who might not be interested in reading my 11,000 word, <laughs> my 11,000 word opus. Uh, and then uh, I think that's ended up working. I've talked to a lot of people who have watched the documentary, but not read the story, who have read the story, but not, not watched the documentary. Uh, we also did a, um, <clears throat> an episode of Bill Rankin's podcast, uh, uh, Breakdown, where I, um, I just read the story aloud, uh, so, sort of like an audiobook version of the story. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's been great to see, um, how different people find the story. And I think that's one thing that, that I've learned is that for newspapers, um, to really have a big impact and, and reach a lot of people nowadays, we have to really diversify what we're doing. Um, so that was, that was probably ultimately the reason why we decided to do the documentary. Good point. You know, Lester read a little bit about, uh, John Grisham's novel that, applies to your uh, writing and research of this case. I'm curious who would play you in the movie. <laughs> People have asked me that. Have you thought about that? The most common answer is Seth Rogen, which I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I love Dr. Fauci's uh, uh, answer, you know, when they ask him uh, uh, about that. He said he wanted Brad Pitt to play him. And then Brad Pitt shows up on Saturday Night Live. So <laughs> may, maybe if you tune into Saturday Night Live, uh, yeah. you might see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. <clears throat> Anybody could play me. Uh, and, you know, they take liberties with movies. They could, you know, they could make me into a woman. I mean, who knows? They can do whatever they want. <laughs> It'd be fine with me if the story, if the story and the essence of the story, which is that uh, justice in America is extremely complicated. Uh, if that message can reach more people than Seth Rogen, well, I mean, it'd be fine. Which leads me to our last question for you of the day. And, and that is, how would you define justice? You've told us it's complicated in America, mm -hmm. no doubt. If you, had to define it, how would you do that? Or what is your notion of justice? Well, my notion of justice is probably, I don't know, it, it, I'm sure it's fluid, uh, you know, depend on uh, when you ask me and what the situation was. But I don't think that it has to be traditional. I don't think it has to be, you know, uh, about spending time in prison or I think there's lots of different ways that justice justice can happen. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's a tough thing to say, but I think that um, generally speaking, justice is, is accountability, right? It's, um, it's, it's someone answering for, for what, what they have done um, or what it, you know, the preponderance of evidence suggests they've done. Um, so it could be many things. It could be the person admitting that they did it, or it could be, you know, the, the, the person, you know, you know, facing a sentence, whatever sentence the judge deems is, is appropriate. Um, but in this case, you know, whatever the, you know, people have asked me, what do you want to see happen? And I, it's just really hard for me to say 
what I want to see happen because I, I have to, you know, I have to keep an open, an, open, an open mind about everything. Whatever the right thing is, that's what I want to happen. That's all. That's the best answer I can come up with. Whatever the right thing and the just thing is, that's what I hope happens. And I hope that when people look back on the case and and the impact that I, that that my work has had, I hope that they can that everyone can agree that what happened, or or that nearly everyone at least can agree that what happened was the right thing. You know. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's probably a terrible answer, but. That's the best I can do. <laughs> thank you, Josh. Yeah, thank you. Thank you we'll all be, so much for we'll having look, Yeah, we'll be looking forward to um, additional, I assume, additional writing from you, uh, reporting about what happens down in Camden County. All right, let's start. Uh, do you have an item that has struck in the news this week that you'd like to share with our listeners? I do, and it's not actually in the news yet, but will be in the news by the time our listeners uh, our listeners uh, get this podcast and are able to listen to it. And that is, uh, as you've heard today with our guest, Josh Sharp, uh, there will be a bond hearing tomorrow in Brunswick, Georgia, for Dennis Perry, who's been in jail for 20 years. His conviction's been vacated. Uh, in an extraordinary motion for new trial. And so the question will be whether or not Dennis Perry gets bond. I expect that he will get bond because there's really no reason to deny it. Perhaps even better, the district attorney's office might decide not to pursue the charges again, given the evidence that was brought, brought forth. But I hope that our, our listeners, after hearing this extraordinary story, will go back and look at the story that Josh is probably going to write uh, tomorrow afternoon uh, and, and I personally hope that it's about Dennis Perry uh, walking out of the penitentiary after 20 years, uh, a, a free man, as well as all, also having been proven, uh, I think, to be an innocent man. Uh, I totally agree. And uh, many definitions of justice. Um, it's not just that Dennis Perry has served 20 years for a crime he didn't commit, but at least he might see some justice now that he's going to get out and be a free man again, hopefully. Uh, the item that, that struck me came out in the Daily Report, our legal organ, this morning, um, and it's a case that I happened to watch or be argued in the, in the Court of Appeals. I have nothing to do with the case, but it involves Danielle Rollins uh, versus her lawyers. She brought a legal malpractice claim against her divorce lawyers. And, and when we say Rollins, we're talking about the Rollins uh, family, billionaire family. And she was married to one of the sons. Uh, they get divorced. And in the divorce, she ended up with $15.3 million in the divorce settlement. And then turns around and sues her divorce lawyers because she didn't get enough. Uh, and the judge in Fulton County State Court, Judge Myra Dixon, um, threw that entire case out except for one tiny little portion uh, of a value of $166,567 from a joint bank account that she and her ex-husband uh, had that she was entitled to. So she was, the, the judge in Fulton County found she might, might be entitled to $166,000, but threw out all the legal malpractice claims throughout the rest of the case. That went up to the Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals affirmed, Judge Mercier affirmed 
the trial court and agreed. It was proper to throw out the entire case. There was no legal malpractice. And I just happened to be arguing a case on the docket in the Court of Appeals the day that was heard. And the entire courtroom was filled with people associated with that case, the Rollins family. There were so many lawyers, I can't even tell you. A uh, very interesting case. So Judge Mercier affirms summary judgment. And then we get word this morning that uh, Danielle's uh, attorneys petitioned for cert in the Supreme Court and this morning's Supreme Court denied cert. So that case is over except for a $166,000 portion of it. There, uh, the attorney, the divorce attorney's lawyer, Joe Kingma, friend of mine, uh, practiced law with Joe 30 years ago, um, he was quoted in the Daily Report as saying, this case where Ms. Rollins sought more than $10 million has been eviscerated. We are confident a jury will see the case for what it is. So uh, he's planning on trying a case over the 166,000 she claims she's owed. Um, but I just thought that was very, very interesting. Uh, huge amount of money at stake. And uh, it came down to summary judgment where the trial judge in the Court of Appeals found there was no legal malpractice claim made out. And uh, I think it's also interesting when you get $15.35 million in a divorce settlement and you don't think that's quite enough, so you sue your lawyer. Uh, and this is the result. If, if you've got $15.3 million and uh, you're still interested in going to court, you might ought to take some of that money and just go to law school where you can go to court anytime you want to instead of, uh, uh, it, instead of uh, uh, pursuing a, a legal malpractice action. But That's all I have, Lester. Well, I guess that uh, uh, finishes up today. Uh, again, thanks to you, Robin, and to, and to Josh. You just did an extraordinary job of telling us about this extraordinary case. And I guess until next time, we will see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.